It's been a year since the Supreme Court's big abortion decision. What have Republicans on Capitol Hill been doing on this issue since then? As it turns out, not that much. Today we get into why that is and why that may be changing later this year. Hello, you're listening to On the Merits, the weekly news podcast from Bloomberg Law and Bloomberg Government. I'm your host, David Schultz. It's been 368 days since the Supreme Court opinion in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health, the case that, of course, overturned the Roe v. Wade constitutional protections for abortion. Among the many ramifications of this opinion was that now Republican lawmakers, both in state houses and in Congress, are free to pass almost any kind of restrictions on abortion they can imagine. But even though Republicans are in control of the lower chamber, surprisingly few bills have made it off of the House floor in the one year since the Dobbs opinion. Bloomberg government reporters Zach Cohen and Alex Ruoff just published a story explaining why this is. Moderate Republicans in the House who represent swing districts have seen public opinion shift on this issue and are using their clout to block a lot of these bills. To find out more about what's going on here and whether or when this might change, I trekked up to the marble halls of Capitol Hill and spoke to Zach right where all the action happens. Zach, uh, before we get started, can you tell us a little bit about where we are and what's on the other side of that wall we're looking at? We are on Capitol Hill right now, just a few steps away from the House chamber. The House the House and the Senate are both currently on recess, so not a lot of folks walking around. But this is where members meet every day, where they're voting on uh, bills and amendments, and then across the street, uh, all the committee rooms where they try to hash out these agreements. But today, I think we're really going to focus on what's been happening in the House chamber and what's been happening off the floor that's kept stuff from getting there. Yeah. So let's get into that. So it's been a year since the Dobbs decision, uh, and that sort of opened the floodgates for a lot of abortion legislation, both in the states and here uh, on Capitol Hill, where, where we are. Can you give me a sense of, in the last year, the most significant pieces of abortion legislation that have gone through Congress specifically? You know, there's probably been a ton of uh, bills introduced, but give me a sense of the ones that have been the most significant. So, so far this year, there's been about 50 bills introduced, according to Bloomberg government data, that directly relate to abortion. Obviously, not all of those have come up for a vote, either in committee or on the floor, so I'll highlight a, a couple of them. There was one that passed earlier this year that did mandate that healthcare providers provide the same chair to children who uh, survive an abortion or an attempted abortion. Uh, and that passed the House. They also passed a sort of a non-binding resolution condemning uh, attacks on quote-unquote pro-life bodies, things like churches or facilities, whatnot, and called on the Biden administration to use appropriate law enforcement to try to protect some of these groups over in the Senate, across the, you know, across the way from where we're sitting. Across the rotunda, as they say. Exactly. Uh, through all the tourists <laughs> that you might be able to hear in the background. Uh, the Senate voted on a bill that didn't become law that would have stopped the Biden administration and the Department of Veterans Affairs from providing abortions in rare instances where they are allowed to under law. Usually there's a federal prohibition against federal taxpayer dollars from going toward abortions. But a lot of other stuff kind of has been on the back burner. You know, 15 or 20 week abortion ban bills haven't even been reintroduced to this Congress, which I think is pretty indicative of where most even House Republicans are at this point. And before we get into the sort of shifting public opinion on abortion, I want to focus on that prohibition on, you know, federal funding for uh, abortion. I think that's that's called the Hyde Amendment, right? Can you explain what that is? It sounds like that's just a, a bill or an amendment that gets reintroduced every year and gets tacked on to the spending, uh, the annual spending bill, but it's not like an ongoing piece of, of legislation. 
That's exactly right. The Hyde Amendment literally is an amendment to spending bills that are added every year uh, that basically prevent any federal dollars from going toward providing abortions. There are some exceptions to that, um, which is actually one of the things that some House Republicans would like to expand, um, which we can talk a little bit about. But this is something that has been a longstanding tradition and something that actually has been one of the, the key differentiators between Republicans and Democrats when trying to hash out whether to fund the government for the next year. And what didn't you and your colleague Alex Ruoff, you guys reported on a measure that came to the House that would have made that permanent. Um, and that failed, right? That didn't, that didn't get passed. It actually hasn't even come up for a vote, precisely because there's enough members of the House Republican Conference, more moderate, more centrist members, who have said, whoa, 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 let's put the brakes on this. Because it would not just codify this Hyde Amendment, this federal prohibition on taxpayer dollars going toward abortions, but it would actually expand it into some of the exceptions uh, that are out there. And it would prevent certain insurance plans that folks get on uh, Obamacare exchanges from also covering abortion. Uh, and some of these, I was talking to one uh, member that said, look, it's, it's advertised as a Hyde Amendment bill, but it's really much more expansive than that. And so there's enough members of this very narrow Republican majority that have said we need to put the brakes on this. We need to go back to the drawing board and look at other parts of this, make some tweaks to it before it comes up for a vote. And the fact that it hasn't even come up for a vote yet gives you a sense of there's just not the votes there. And even if there were, Speaker Kevin McCarthy isn't going to want to put some of these members in the position of voting for a bill. Uh, that they don't support or voting against a bill on the floor and potentially cause a backlash on their right. Well, let's talk about the why here. Why are there not votes to uh, back some of these pieces of abortion legislation? Um, it sounds like based on the polling that you guys cited and, and just special election results that the politics of abortion have changed a whole lot in the last year. Tell me more about that. Yeah, we are obviously just over a year after the Supreme Court in the decision Dobbs v. Jackson overturned the federal right to an abortion that was originally established in Roe v. Wade in the 1970s. It was a huge sea change. Now states can basically come up with how they want to adjudicate abortion in their individual states, where it's at, whether it's banned outright or whether it's got more uh, liberal or more expansive policies for the procedure. And the polling on it really has shifted. Um, pretty consistently. Um, for instance, Gallup, which has surveyed opinions on abortion rights for decades, uh, actually found last month that a record high 69% of Americans said abortion should generally be legal in the first trimester of a pregnancy. It's kind of difficult to think of a topic that more than two-thirds of Americans agree on, it, it, regardless. You know, it could be their favorite soft drink or, or you know, what, the, what movie they're watching. But two-thirds of Americans be believe that abortion should be legal in the first trimester. Right, generally speaking. I think there's probably everybody would have different opinions on what exactly exceptions should be built into that. And that's one of the issues with the polling is, do you talk about um, life and health of the mother, rape, incest? These are all things I think people would generally be more in favor of allowing abortion in later parts of the pregnancy, especially when life or health of the mother are involved. You hear that over and over again. And there's polling that actually, on the other side of that, some support for some federal protections against abortion since Dobbs. Because Roe v. Wade has been taken off the books, it's kind of a fresh page. Um, and there are certainly some on the right, people like Lindsey Graham, Tim Scott, or senators, uh, there are outside groups, and obviously a fair number of House Republicans who say Congress should have a role in making sure that we limit the cases where abortion is allowed. Well, let's talk about the moderate House Republicans who are trying to thread this needle, who want some abortion restrictions, but maybe aren't comfortable for any number of re reasons uh, with going all the way and restricting it full stop. 
And one of the uh, members that you profiled in your story was Nancy Mace. Can you talk about her stance and what she wants to, to see happen before abortion restrictions come up? Nancy Mace is actually one of the newer members of the House. She was only elected uh, just two or so years ago uh, and is one of these people that's been out there pretty vociferously talking about the need to change the Republican agenda, especially since the Dobbs decision. So that way, Republicans are not at risk of losing women. I was just talking to a Republican strategist that pointed out that uh, suburban women especially are going to make or break the House Republican majority next year. And so there's a lot of interest in making sure that they're not putting up uh, bills that are not going to be politically toxic. So that's why you've got people like Nancy Mace, who's from this uh, Charleston area district, a little more moderate, had a Democrat in that seat you know, just a few years ago. You had people like uh, Lori Chavez-Dreamer from Oregon, won a very competitive race, and only because uh, Democrats ended up replacing a much more moderate Democrat in that seat with a much more progressive candidate that couldn't win a general election. Um, members from New York who are in other more competitive districts, all of these folks are trying to balance not just obviously the demands of their party, but also the demands of a much more competitive district in November of next year. That's one of the more interesting details from your story is that it sounds like her strategy is to trade her vote in one area for a vote for other bills, uh, specifically pro-woman bills, as she, as she calls them. Can you talk about the strategy of vote trading that, that she and maybe other House uh, moderates are doing? Yeah, she's actually put herself at so many of the debates on Capitol Hill every once in a while. She'll come out and say, I've got serious concerns about this bill and end up voting for it on the floor. I think uh, BGov data shows that she's voted with her party 88% of the time, um, which doesn't sound like a moderate voting record. But what she's told us, um, my, our former colleague Emily Wilkins wrote a profile of her and she said, this is on purpose. What I'm trying to do is show that there is a path forward for places to break from the party and make substantial changes to the agenda by making sure that my vote is not taken for granted. And so on things like debt limit bills or on Ilhan Omar's expulsion from committees, the Minnesota Democrat who's been accused of making uh, anti-Semitic comments in the past. And so while her vote tally may look you know, like a pretty conservative lawmaker, she has enough that she can go back to her district in Charleston and say, look what I brought back for you, the constituents. Look at the ways that I fought against my party in your interest. And it's worth noting that, you know, the reason why she and other House moderates can do this is because Speaker Kevin McCarthy, to pass these bills, needs just about every Republican in the House to do. I mean, he's the majority in the House is so slim that, you know, any member, any any voting bloc really has the power to block anything from coming to the floor. Right. Yeah, we hear a lot about the conservatives in this conference, the the Matt Gates and the Lauren Boberts of the world, just because they tend to be more public in their opposition when it comes to various leadership decisions, or even when talking about the, the will of the larger House Republican conference. But there are a significant number of moderates who are in these really tough races um, who are going to want to work behind closed doors and make sure that the bills that they're ending up voting on are something they can can defend to their constituents back home. New York alone has enough Republicans in competitive districts that they can swing a vote if they really wanted to, uh, as long as it was party line otherwise. There are seats like this across the country uh, that Kevin McCarthy needs to keep his eye on just as much as he does his right flank. Well, finally, though, I want to kind of, you know, maybe answer some of the questions that I think listeners might be having right now, which is, why does this even matter? You know, we have 
House Republicans here who are struggling to pass legislation, but even if they do, it has to go across the rotunda that we just talked about and go over to the Senate, which is controlled, of course, by Democrats. And then even if the legislation does get passed there, somehow it has to go to the president's desk and the president is a Democrat. So why, ultimately, why does any of this matter? Because, you know, given that nearly all of the legislation that the House is going to pass, especially on abortion, is going to be DOA in the Senate. We're just a little over six months into this new two-year Congress. Um, the elections in 2024 are about a year and a half off. This first six months, when some of the bigger bills, the kind of must-pass bills, the stuff that's actually going to become law is still being written, it opens up both chambers to do some of these more messaging bills. It's an important way for majorities to say this is where we stand and get folks on the record, uh, either politically speaking or to make sure that their supporters feel like they're being heard from the last election. Where the rubber's really going to hit the road is on things like these spending bills that we talked about, the Hyde Amendment, for instance, that we talked about, this federal prohibition on federal spending on abortions. That's going to be litigated and has to be figured out before at least September 30th, maybe January 1st, in order to get spending bills passed and avoid a government shutdown sometime later this year or early next. But Republicans are actually talking about a much broader view of trying to restrict abortion access through these spending bills. Our colleague Jack Fitzpatrick very helpfully put together a list for us of some of the riders, half a dozen of them already at least, that have been added to these spending bills that are coming out of committee, things that would block the FDA from allowing people to get in the mail uh, mifepristone, one of the two drugs used for abortions, expanding the, the federal prohibition, that Hyde Amendment, barring the D.C. government from using its own funds to pay for an abortion, one of these other riders that's been around for a long time, uh, blocking the VA's rare abortion services that we talked about earlier the Senate tried to stop and failed to do, barring the use of global health funds to pay for any abortion, uh, known as the Helms Amendment, restoring the Mexico City policy, the global gag rule, uh, restoring the ban on support for foreign NGOs that perform abortions. All of these things they're going to have to work out between Republicans and Democrats to get these spending bills over the finish line. So while we're only a few days out from the anniversary of the Dobbs decision, this is a debate that Congress is going to continue to have for the next couple of months at least. That's really interesting. And it makes me think that, you know, looking at the individual bills that get passed in the House by Republicans maybe doesn't mean a whole lot, but it actually can be a preview of what's coming because a lot of those bills, it sounds like, are going to get tacked on to these must-pass spending packages, or at least our lawmakers are going to try to tack them on to uh, the, these, you know, the must-pass spending packages that, again, if they don't pass, we have a government shutdown. Exactly. All of these are bargaining chips on the table, and there are any number of priorities that Democrats and Republicans are going to want to get through these spending bills because they are some of the few things that do become law every Congress. The question becomes, what do Democrats and Republicans behind closed doors, the people who are more willing to negotiate on these issues, say, I'll give you this for that and X for Y? Uh, and I think we're a couple of months out from knowing where that falls. And then it'll be up to some of these moderates, some of these conservatives to say, here's the final package. Take it or leave it. All right. Well, that was uh, Zach Cohen uh, giving us a primer on how a divided Congress works. Uh, thank you, Zach, so much for uh, chatting with me. This was very educational. Sure thing. And that'll do it for today's episode of On the Merits. It was produced by myself, David Schultz. Our editor is Andrew Satter. And our executive producer is Josh Block. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And have a lovely 4th of July. I felt like I was in jail every day. 
when I was going to work. I'm like, I got to get out of here. My executive order calls on the FTC to ban or limit non-compete agreements. Let workers choose who they want to work for. This season on Uncommon Law, we're exploring one of the most expansive Federal Trade Commission proposals in modern history, a nationwide ban on non-compete clauses. Non-compete clauses can really restrict competition. They can be coercive, they can be exploitative. We'll talk to workers who were desperate to take new jobs in their industry, only to be blocked by threat of a lawsuit. I remember getting served my cease and desist and thinking that this can't be right, this can't be fair, how can she get away with this? And we'll talk to the business owners who say they depend on these clauses to keep their companies afloat. I think like with anything else, when you enter into an agreement, there are rules. And you decide if you want to participate in that or not. I just believe that there should be some protections for small businesses like myself that are already in a very competitive industry. Plus, does the FTC under chair Lena Khan even have the power to pass this rule? Look, Congress gave the FTC the authority to check unfair methods of competition. There is no limit to what Khan thinks she may be able to achieve if she can label it an unfair method of competition. Lena Khan is not coming out of nowhere. It really is the natural progression of the insights that we have about how harmful non-competes are on our markets. Join us as we explore the far-reaching implications of this proposal and the likely court battle that could shape the future of the American workforce. That's this season on Uncommon Law from Bloomberg Industry Group.